Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. I would like to be baptized because I want to know that people that I believe in the salvation of God. I want to be baptized so I can follow Jesus' example. I'm A.J. Odom, and because of Jesus, I've experienced new life. AJ at the 8.30 service just a little while ago. So how exciting what God's doing in the hearts of so many of our children and our adults. Uh, just, a, just a very, very uh, joyful, uh, just a joyful season for us. And I just praise the Lord for that. Let's pray so we can begin this morning. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity again just to gather as a body of believers. Lord, just to set aside this time in, in, in a busy world just to focus on you just to think about you, just to think about Christ, Lord, and, and the word that you've given us. Lord, I pray that this morning as we open up your truth, you would just uh, compel us, you would challenge us, Father, as you always do, just to, to hear from you, Lord. I pray that your words would just jump off the page. Lord, I pray they would kind of impact our heart, Lord, and impact our mind and, and, and the way that we think and especially the way that we act. Lord, help us just to deepen our faith and deepen our walk. And as we pray every Sunday morning, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, May we be transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. Open to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. If you forgot your Bible, there's one kind of in front of where you're sitting in one of the chairs. You can grab that. Welcome to use that this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can have it. That'll be our gift to you. But we're in Mark chapter 14, and in that Bible where you're sitting, that's page 851, Mark chapter 14. We're continuing our study this morning. We're walking through the life of Jesus. We're going chapter by chapter, trying to understand a little bit more about who he is, figuring out what he taught, figuring out how we can take truth from him and, and apply it to our life. And so last week, we were in Mark chapter 13. Mark 13 was an interesting chapter, and the podcast is available if you want to listen to it. But it covered the end times and the tribulation and the destruction of the temple and uh, the Antichrist. And we kind of made this point as we studied through Mark 13 that so many people get caught up on the when that they miss the truth of what Christ was teaching. And, And here's what Christ was teaching in Mark 13. Jesus basically said, listen, you don't need to worry about when this is going to happen. You don't really need to worry about who the Antichrist is going to be. You don't need to get caught up in kind of the timeline. Instead, what you need to be doing is preparing your heart now. You should kind of live in this constant state of readiness. You understand that? That's important for us to get. Because a lot of people get caught up in the end times, and I've often wondered, is it because they think if I just kind of knew a few months out, I would live a little bit different like I'd change a few things, like if Jesus were going to be coming back sometime middle of next week, I'd probably do something a little bit different today than I was planning on doing. Jesus says, listen, you don't need to worry about when it's going to happen. You need to prepare your heart. You need to be ready when it does. And so now we're going to move in this morning into Mark chapter 15, Mark, excuse me, Mark 14. Mark 14 is an interesting chapter. It's actually the longest chapter in the gospel of Mark. There's a lot of things in it. We could probably preach five or six sermons out of it, but I want to summarize, summarize just a little bit of it and then jump into to a, a very important section kind of in the middle of the chapter of the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to kind of prepare you for this. Let me kind of tell you what Jesus is going to do 
give you a little bit of explanation, then we're going to jump right into this text together. A few things you need to notice if you're looking at your copy of God's Word. Jesus is going to be anointed in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. Judas, he's going to talk about the betrayal that Judas is going to do. He's going to turn him in that we'll see here in just a few minutes in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to talk about Peter's denial. And then he's going to have the Lord's Supper. Now, I really prayed a lot about whether I should preach the Lord's Supper or I should go into the Garden of Gethsemane. But we're going to start a new series here in the fall. And one of the first sermons I'm going to preach is going to be on the Lord's Supper. So I thought, you know what, let's just skip past that this morning. We'll come back to it here in just a few weeks. But I want to preach this morning the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane beginning in verse 32. And I want to make a statement for you. I want you to understand the importance of what we're going to see this morning and the significance in the life of Christ. I believe that this is the most pivotal moment up to this point in Christ's life. Because Jesus has got this real clear choice. and We're going to see it kind of play out in the words of Scripture here in just a few minutes. He's got the choice of either doing the will of the Father or doing his own will. Right? It's the choice that we're faced with on a very regular basis, right? Every moment of every day. We can either choose to trust the Lord, follow the Lord's will for our life, or we instead can choose to do what we want to do and follow our own will. One writer kind of explained it like this. Here Jesus prays the greatest prayer in the world. Now listen to this. What hung in the balance, what hung in the balance was the glory of God's grace and the salvation of the world. The success of Jesus' mission to earth depended on Jesus' prayer and the answer given. Right? Just imagine if Jesus had not chosen to do the will of the Father. Salvation for us would be very different. Our life would be very different. Everything about who we are would be very different. But because Jesus chose to do the will of the Father, he offered salvation to all who would believe. So I want you to see that this morning in Scripture. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. Jesus and his followers have just taken the Lord's Supper. They've walked down out of the upper room, across the Kidron Valley, up into the Mount of Olives. And we read in verse 32 of Mark 14, So they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So Jesus walks into the Mount of Olives, into the area of Gethsemane with his disciples. He leaves the main group, takes the three guys with him a little bit farther, asks them to watch and pray. He goes on a little bit farther and prays alone. And then verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said, Peter. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for the eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want to stop there, and I want to see what we can learn this morning about prayer, about what the prayer of Christ meant 
for his disciples and for his followers, and now what it means for us. So here's the first truth I want to give you, then I want to kind of think back through it together. Number one, our prayer should come from a place of deep longing to speak with the Lord. Our prayer should come from a place of deep longing to speak with the Lord. Now, I want you to understand the mindset of Jesus here. This is important for us to get. Let's kind of understand his dilemma, understand what he's thinking, understand what he's saying. Jesus, in this particular context, has come to a very difficult place in his life. In fact, the, the scriptures bear that out. If you look at verse 33, let's look at verse 33 again together. I want you to see it. Verse 33 says, he took Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Right? This is a very difficult moment for Jesus because Jesus is about to experience something none of us can even, even imagine. Right? So, so the theme that we kind of see in, in Mark chapter 14 is one for Jesus of, of suffering and pain and sorrow and ultimately abandonment. Right? You think about the life of Christ, it's very interesting. And I, I said this really from the beginning, how things were going to change for him. But early in the ministry of Jesus, thousands of people followed him. They had large crowds of people. In fact, the, the crowds were so large at times that, that they pressed up against him. And the Bible said he had to get in a boat, row out into the Sea of Galilee just to be able to preach because there were so many people around him. Right? As long as he was doing miracles, healing people, teaching to them, large crowds gathered. But as Jesus began to explain his ministry, as he began to explain why he came to earth, as he began to explain his purpose, those numbers began to decrease. And now he finds himself in the garden with his followers, with the three that are closest to him. And in just a few hours, even those people, even Peter, is going to leave him. One scholar explained it like this. He said, at the cross, Jesus dies utterly alone. Condemned by Rome, abandoned by the nation, his people, his followers, and even the Father. Jesus is, is very aware of the suffering he's about to face. Right? Jesus is very aware of the issue that he's about to endure. Jesus knows clearly what's going to happen, and it leads him to this very interesting prayer in verse 36. I want you to look at it again. So he's suffering, he's sorrowful, he's troubled, he's distressed. And then he says in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here. Jesus, who is broken, who's sorrowful, who's upset, who understands the difficulty he's about to go through, he's at this very moment desperate to speak with God the Father. You understand that? Like, this prayer isn't just some little casual prayer he prays before he goes to work. This isn't some little prayer he just kind of spouts off at night because he hasn't had any real time during the day to pray. This is a prayer that comes from this deep, sorrowful place in his heart. He understands what he's about to endure, and he's desperate to speak to the Father about it. I just want you to get the depth of what's happening here because I think far too many of us miss that. 
Like I, I can say to you, and I'll speak for myself, I can't speak for you. Like I don't know how often my depth and level of prayer is to this place. Where there's this desperate longing to speak to the Father. There's, a, there's this desperate longing to, to cry out and, and to call out to Him. Right? I, I think far too many of us are very flippant in our prayer life. I think far too many of us just don't see it as a big deal, or maybe if we understand it as a big deal, we're not really living it out. And this example kind of just flies in the face of the quick momentary prayer that doesn't really mean anything. Jesus, in the very depths of his soul, is calling out to the Father. That's an example we need to understand. But I want you to understand what he's asking for here because this is important. It clues us into his heart a little bit. And it's going to lead us in just a few minutes to another important truth. Look at verse 36 again. Jesus makes this interesting request. Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to talk about the word cup just for a second. Because Jesus says, listen, I would like for you, Lord, if possible, to remove this cup. And if you've never really studied this or you're not quite familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane, I want to kind of clue you in a little bit. We're not talking about a physical cup. He's not looking at a cup of of wine or of water sitting there with him in the garden. In fact, there's a very specific meaning that we find of the word cup all through the Old Testament. Now remember, just a little bit of biblical history here. The New Testament at this point had not yet been written. So Jesus' understanding and the disciples' understanding of Scripture came from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the word cup is used oftentimes as a symbol of God's judgment or punishment or wrath. I want to give you a few examples. You don't have to find these, but you can write them down and read them later. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Right? There's that idea. Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Revelation chapter 14 verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Right? The Old Testament is kind of littered with these verses that speak of the cup of the Lord and the wrath that it contains. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus is speaking of this cup, he's talking about the wrath of God poured out on sinners. Now, let's make this connection here. I want you to get this, right? Sin leads to death. That's what Scripture teaches. In fact, you can see that over and over in Scripture. And sin requires a punishment. Now, the Old Testament is interesting. You can go through and read the Old Testament and the way that the Jewish people understood punishment and the way that God kind of gave them to uh, uh, be forgiven of their sins through lots of rituals, through lots of laws, and eventually through sacrifices. You know, I didn't tell this story last week, but I'm going to tell it now because it's interesting to me. I was talking last week about our trip to South Asia and we do what's called Luke 10 walks. That's when we just walk into the community. It's very different here. We, We don't walk here. It's hard for us to understand. We drive places, but there very few people drive. 
We're in a big city. There's a lot of foot traffic. And so we just set out on foot, basically, is what we do. And we go into different areas and different neighborhoods. And we went into a very Muslim area. And in those parts of the world, there are different areas based on background and religion. And so we went into a, a Muslim neighborhood. By the way, there, there, I said this last week, but there are more Muslims in, in India than in most of the Middle Eastern countries combined. Isn't that interesting? And so when we go into these areas, the way that we uh, share Christ with them is we use these stories of the Old Testament, these sacrifice stories. Because Muslims, you, you may know this, uh, through the Quran, understand Old Testament stories. There's some connection points for them. So you can tell them some Old Testament stories, Abraham especially, and stories of Moses. They're familiar with those prophets. They're familiar with those stories. And so we use those stories to make this connection. So we'll tell them sacrifice stories because Muslims currently still sacrifice for the atonement of sins. And so we'll tell them the story of the Garden of Eden. You can go back and read these later. But it's the story of Adam and Eve when they sinned. God sacrificed an animal and covered them with the skin of that animal. Right, the, the idea that a sacrifice will cover our sin. We talked to them about that. Then we talked to them in the story about Abraham and his son Isaac. Now, they think it's Ishmael, so we don't say the, the name of the son. We just say Abraham and his son. We tell them the story of the sacrifice and how God provided a ram in place of the sacrifice, in place of the son. Then we tell them the story of Moses and the Passover and the sacrifice of the lamb and how the blood of the perfect lamb will cause the death angel to pass over and they won't be held accountable for their sins. And so they're tracking with us with these sacrifice stories. Then we read to them John 1.29 where John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? That's the connection point we make. That's how we share the gospel. It's a fascinating approach, and it works oftentimes. But we understand through this scripture, we understand through studying the, the New Testament, and especially through Mark 14, that sin is going to lead to death, that it requires punishment, that there has to be some sort of a sacrifice. And so when Jesus is praying that the cup would be removed, he understands that he's about to stand in the gap that he is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice that's going to die on the cross and take your place. That means that the punishment that was due to you because of your sins, Jesus instead is going to take for you. Do you understand that? Now we think about the cross and we're usually, or I'm usually, thinking about a physical pain. And it, it was excruciating. You can read about it. You can think about the pain of death through crucifixion and how it just lingered and sometimes took hours and days even. But I would say to you, I believe that the physical pain was something Christ was certainly concerned about. But I think he was far more concerned with the spiritual pain. The spiritual suffering that was going to come because the sins of the world were going to be placed upon him. One scholar explained it like this. He said, for every sinner for whom he died, he took that sinner's, that's you and me, he took that sinner's eternal wrath. For the millions of sinners for whom he died, he took a million eternities full of wrath, and he was wholly harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. That's why the struggle was so immense. I just want you to kind of let that for just a moment sink in, the absolute beauty of grace in salvation. Right, this perfect man who never did anything wrong was willing 
to die on a horrible cross for you to not only endure the physical suffering that went along with it, but the agony of the sin that he's taking your place for. You understand that? Like, like that alone should lead us to this place of absolute worship. But it's interesting to me what Jesus does here. He fully understands the cross. He fully understands the physical pain. He fully understands the spiritual pain. He fully understands the wrath of God being poured out upon him because of the sin of the world. And yet in his darkest moment, right? This is an application for us. In his darkest moment, he didn't go and gossip to to people about it. Uh, In our world, he didn't go put anything on social media. He didn't complain to a lot of people. In his darkest moment, what did he do? He prayed. He fell on his face before God the Father and he cried out to him. We need to understand this model. We need to take this model seriously. We need to understand that we need to be more concerned, uh, more dedicated, uh, more serious about our prayer life. And when we pray, pull point number one back up for me, please. When we pray, <clears throat> it should come from this place of a deep longing to speak with the Lord. Do you understand that? It shouldn't just happen because, well, we might as well. Now I want you to see the model here because this is an important thing I want you to get. There's a second truth, and then I'm going to demonstrate it for you. Truth number two, our prayer should follow the model Christ gave us. Our prayer should follow the model Christ gave us. Now, there's a very interesting parallel here between the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. You may remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus goes up on the mountain, and he preaches the greatest sermon in the history of the world. And in that sermon, he preaches about prayer. And he gives the disciples a model for that prayer. I have that on the screen. I want you to look at it. Matthew chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 9 through 13. The words of Christ. Pray then like this, he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, that's the way that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6 his disciples to pray. This is the model prayer, Jesus says. And it's interesting because if you were to kind of study the prayer life of Jesus, and especially the the, the example we're given here in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is going to take this model, this Lord's prayer, and he's going to use it in the way that he prays. And so I'm going to give you... Four parallels, four simple truths about both of these prayers that we ought to model in our prayer life. Right? If we think about the idea of praying from this deep longing to speak to the Lord about things, we should also understand there's a model that we can use in Scripture to help us do that. So here are some similarities between these two prayers. The first one, the first kind of truth that we understand based on these two prayers is that we should, number one... That scared me. Sorry. Is that me? Okay, it's okay, says Jay. That's, you're not standing up here, Jay. That's fine for you to say. It's scary. It just kind of came on all of a sudden. Maybe the devil doesn't want me to say this. I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, we should take time to pray. We should take time to pray. If you read that account, I'm not going to read it to you now, but that Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus talks about prayer, he doesn't begin by saying, if you pray, 
He doesn't begin by saying, well, if you find time one day. He says, when you pray, do it this way. It's the same example in, in Mark chapter 14. Jesus goes three separate times into the garden by himself to pray. Each time coming back, checking on the disciples. Could you guys not stay awake and pray with me? Right? We, we need to take time to pray. That's the first thing. Here's the second one. Our prayers must first acknowledge who God is. Now, I'm going to read you the beginning of both of these prayers. I want you to listen. In the Lord's Prayer, and you don't have to look back. I just want you to listen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In Mark chapter 14, Gethsemane, verse 36, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Right? Jesus begins these prayers by calling upon and recognizing the holy name of God the Father. You understand that? There's something that happens in our brains when we acknowledge in our prayer that he is God and we are not. Like I like to begin my prayer. I don't always do it, but if I'm thinking straight and I'm doing it the way I want to do it, I like to begin my prayers with acknowledging some of the attributes of God. King of kings, Lord of lords, author of our salvation, the giver of all good gifts, on and on the list goes. It's not that I'm saying, hey, I'm giving you these attributes. They're already there. I'm simply just reminding myself that you are God, that you sit on your throne, that you are all powerful, and I'm not. It puts me in a right frame when I acknowledge his power and his glory at the beginning of our prayer, my prayer. It puts me kind of in the right frame of mind. And it's interesting how Jesus does this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Right? I'm already acknowledging at the beginning of the prayer exactly who you are, Lord. Here's the third thing. We should pray for protection from temptation. We should pray for protection from temptation. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14, verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying for his followers. In John 17, 15, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. One of the things Jesus couldn't understand about his disciples is they kept falling asleep. Like, can't you guys wake up? And, and, and by the way, that just really resonates in my heart. Like, have you ever just tried to pray and you can't stay awake? <laughs> you ever tried to pray and there's something else going on that kind of draws your attention? You ever done this? This is how the, the devil does with me. It's like I try to pray and the, the enemy will remind me of something I've done wrong that I haven't thought about in a long time. You ever had that struggle? Jesus says, listen, we need to pray that we're protected from temptation. We're not led into evil. right? Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You should go back and read. I'm not going to read it to you now. But Paul makes this argument in Romans 7, kind of the end of Romans 7, into Romans 8, 1, where he basically said, I, I can't do the things I want to do, but then I turn around and do the things that I don't want to do. It's like the spirit is willing. Like, I want to be a man of God. I want to say the right things. I want to act the right way. I want to treat my family well. I want to be a leader in our community. I want to do all these things. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? We understand that, don't we? We get that. And so what's the answer when the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak? We need to pray that the Lord would deliver us from that evil. (laughs) 
that he would strengthen and encourage us. We, we find those in both prayers. And, and then the fourth kind of thing that we see, the fourth parallel, is that our prayer must seek God's will over our own. And this is going to lead us kind of into our next section, right? The Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus prays, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then in Mark 14, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet, here it is, not what I will, but what you will. Right, we, we need to understand, we're going to see this here in just a second again in the scripture, we need to understand that God's will always comes before our own. And that may seem obvious to you, but if you really kind of, if you're honest about yourself and you're honest about your prayers, we don't oftentimes pray like this. So here's the third truth I want you to see, and then we're going to kind of wind this thing down this morning. Truth number three. Our prayer should lead to obedience. Our prayer should lead to obedience. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's interesting to me as Jesus kind of talks to his disciples and, and, and as he thinks about the prayer, and as he encourages them, I'm just reminded of the first story in Scripture of a man in a garden. <laughs> you may remember the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And, and God gave them very specific directions and, and very clear instructions. And Adam and Eve kind of had this path they could take. They could either choose to follow the things of the Lord and obey Him, or they could choose to do what they wanted to do and be disobedient. And, and we know the story. They, choose, they chose to be disobedient. They chose to eat. God told them not to. Sin and death entered the world. Everything changed. Right, well, fast forward now to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? the final garden here. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. Because Jesus was able to obey the will of the Father, salvation is now offered to all who would believe. And I think about the, the passage in Genesis chapter 3 where he's talking to the serpent. And he says, listen, one day the seed of the woman, you'll, you'll nip at his heel, you'll bite at his heel, you'll try to destroy him. But one day the seed of the woman will ultimately crush you, Satan. And we're seeing that played out now in the garden. I, I, I think I can prove this biblically. I'm not going to do it right now. I'm, I'm happy to show it to you later. But I believe within the garden of Gethsemane, the devil was hard at work to try to dissuade Christ from following the will of his father. I think he was actively trying to destroy Christ. I think he would have done everything he could to keep Christ from doing the will that God called him to do. He's nipping at his heel. He's biting at his heel. He's trying to crush Christ. He's trying to crush the idea of salvation. But Christ was faithful and obedient and did all the things that the Lord called him to do. One writer said it like this. He said, he alone is the obedient son of the Father. And thus, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is a dramatic enactment of his representative work. Adam disobeyed in a garden of paradise. The last Adam obeyed in a garden of agony. Meanwhile, his disciples were sleeping in lieu of their eventual abandonment of Jesus. Just another reminder of the gospel. Jesus' obedience to the Father is the only hope for weak, disobedient, and treacherous people like us. You know, you, you think about Christ and his will and what he gave and what he sacrificed. 
And I hope it leads you to a place of understanding. Hope it leads you to a place of hope and joy and peace and worship because Christ offers to all who would believe this free gift of salvation. We're simply called to follow and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture that you've given us of Christ. We're thankful, Father, in that garden all those centuries ago that he did your will. Lord, may that be a reminder to us, Father, to to pray from a, a deep desire to speak to you. Father, may that remind us to to pray with the idea of obedience in mind. Father, may we learn to model our prayer off of what Christ did and and how he prayed. And Father, I, I pray you just remind us of all he did and all he sacrificed and all he gave. And Father, may that spur us on to more, to trust you more, Father, to deepen our faith, to love you more, to celebrate you more, to serve you more, to give more because of you. Father, just let this truth just kind of resonate a little bit in our minds and our hearts, all that Christ did. May it lead us to a place of worship right now. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory for everything that you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. The altar is open. This, this is an opportunity we give you to respond. You can sing or you can pray, or you can come speak to me about salvation or about membership. This is a chance for you to respond as we sing together this Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.